Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. This is our first episode of 2020, and so to get me started off is my trusty companion, Phoebe Watson. Hello. We are back from our Christmas breaks. I took a week or two off. To my dismay. Yes. <laughs> Not quite. But we are, we're back now for 2020 and looking forward to all that the year has to bring. It still feels like we're just a little bit in the previous year in that our Christmas decorations are still up. <laughs> yeah, we haven't quite agreed when they're coming down yet. So we'll, we'll have to get there. We'll figure that out eventually. But Maybe February. February 2nd, that's what I'm reliably informed, is the final date. But for our first episode of the year, we've decided to go for the most obvious and the most straightforward topic, which is something that is very much still being talked about, and that is Little Women, and the new adaptation by Greta Gerwig is in cinemas. I'm sure maybe by the time this goes up it'll just be out, but certainly it's currently still in cinemas. Uh, yeah, it's a very appropriate one for us to talk about, isn't it? It's quite a Christmassy one as well, so it's kind of appropriate. <laughs> yeah, and we went to see it just this past week. Because we knew this was coming, we've been doing some preparation. I hadn't actually read Little Women before. To uh, my shock and dismay. I know, but I did watch the BBC miniseries adaptation with Phoebe about two years ago, which we have since... We watched the film on the Wednesday and we're recording this on the Saturday and in the intervening days we have managed to watch the BBC version as well. It was wonderful. It's To start off we better say that we really enjoyed both adaptations. Yeah I meant like the whole experience was wonderful. I was also rereading Little Women and Good Wives at the same time so this week was just kind of I know and I've been jam-packed. I've been listening to that I had them on audiobook so I've been listening to Little Women and Good Wives for about a month or so and uh, I just, at this point, as much as I've loved it, I do feel like Little Women is falling out of my ears at this point. Everything <laughs> is Little Women this. Um, and I've been putting myself in the mood by crocheting or watching. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so we, we're definitely saturated with Little Women. And we're very excited to talk about the story. For this episode, I think we're going to focus on what we consider to be at the very heart of the Little Women narrative. And then talk about how the new adaptations kind of interact with the themes and the lessons from the book. But I suppose, given that I have only just read Little Women, it's I'm in no place to school people who don't know the story, so we better do a little bit of a recap of the story before we fully launch into our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll see how quickly I can do this. Again, as usual, we will warn you that spoilers for this, what, 150-year-old story? <laughs> yeah, I think we're just going to spoil the entire story. Pretty much. Um, if you haven't seen any of the adaptations or read the book, mm-hmm. then maybe do one of those first. Yeah. Or it's a good enough story that it can probably withstand being spoiled and then still be enjoyed. Yeah, and I mean, probably the most major spoiler, which I'm just about to say, so brace yourselves, but I feel like most people know that Beth dies even before they... Like, I knew Did that. Did you know that as a child I got a horrendous shock about that one? Because we only had Little Women the first copy. Mm-hmm. And then I was saying that how much I disliked the movie because Beth died in it when she wasn't supposed to die. <laughs> and our neighbours had to come along and pull out like the second copy and go, uh, but she dies in this one. <laughs> like, what? 
I have one worse than that. I was talking with my friend Gail this week who grew up, part of her family is French and she read it in French first. And the version, for some reason, the French decided to censor the book to a certain extent. And Weird. excised that bit from the book. What? So she, di she didn't realise until she was older that that was in it. That's horrendous. <laughs> I literally just reread that this afternoon and Rachel came in to me bawling my mm -hmm. eyes out. I'm trying to think. I feel like she said they cut out something else as well, but I, I can't remember what that was. But yeah, definitely they cut out that particular plot point, which is wild to me. But yes, so to get onto the actual story and not just the spoilers, the story of Little Women is centred on the March family and the mainly the four March sisters. There is Meg, who's the eldest, and they, they each kind of have a sort of set of... There's a whole chapter where they describe their castles in the sky, which are their dreams, their hopes for their lives, which are very much like easily distinct between the four sisters so it's usually the easiest way to distinguish them so Meg is the most beautiful and the most interested in love and in having a nice and beautiful life with a certain degree of wealth all of the March sisters are currently in a, a, a state of poverty they're not wretchedly poor but they are genteelly poor and poorer than they were when they were little yes because mm. the family has fallen on hard times yeah and so she is interested in marrying well and having a yeah. nice life. And at the beginning of the story, she's working as a governess. Mm -hmm. And then next is Jo, who's kind of the main character of the novel. She's a lot more tomboyish. She's almost, she's the boy of the family in many mm -hmm. ways. And quite wild. She's also one who loves writing. And it is independent and, and stubborn and all of those wonderful things. The The book is written by Louisa May Alcott, who did base the characters at least relatively loosely, but still very much based on her own family. And Jo is kind of her corresponding character. So that's why she's the sort of anchor of the story and that it's almost her perspective. And younger than her is Beth, who's the most shy and retiring and possibly weakest of the four in terms of her health. And if she stays at home, she's mainly a help around the house. She's described as quite housewifely and, and lives a life which is about showing love and demonstrating love, but is quite restricted by her own sense of shyness. And she loves her kids. Yes. And then after her is... Amy. Amy's the youngest of the family. When the novel kicks off, she's 12. Though I think both of the adaptations struggle with a 12-year-old who then becomes an 18-year-old. <laughs> um, but she's... A little bit spoiled. Mm -hmm. She's got kind of her airs and graces. Yeah. She likes being graceful. She's a developing artist, so she loves drawing and painting. But she's also very good at being kind to others. And she grows a lot in the story. Yeah. Her and Joe probably have the most transformational arc. Yeah, definitely. And then obviously their parents, their father is away. He's a chaplain, so he's helping with the Civil War effort. And so they are left without him when the story begins. And their mother is at that kind of point, the head of the family. And she is very much at the heart of the family as well. She's adored. Yeah, she's wonderfully called Marmee. It is this really close-knit family who are all very much intertwined and their lives and their fates and their actions are all very much linked and close-knit and uh, and into this their next door neighbor who's a lot wealthier than they are an old man he takes in his grandson called Laurie 
And well, Theodore Lawrence. Yes. And he becomes a big part of their lives. He, his parents have passed away. And so it's a process of him becoming a part of this family. And he has a very close relationship with Joe. So a lot of the tension of the story starts coming up around how he starts to fall for Joe. And Joe feels doesn't reciprocate that kind of emotion. She yeah. loves him, but not in that way. I think, yeah, that's particularly a point of good wives. Yes. Um, that comes in. But also... I think uh, perhaps, we should, perhaps we should say, I mean, uh, just to clarify, Little Women can be sold as one book, which is called Little Women, but it was actually split into two books called Little Women and Good Wives. Yeah, but... so Little Women covers about a year from you start off at Christmas when the father's off at war and then you go through to essentially the next Christmas yeah. when the father comes home. Yeah. Um, and then the next arc is three years later. Yes. But when we're talking about the adaptations, most of them, even though they're called Little Women, is actually about the two stories. And yeah, I don't think there's any that just take the first book. No, no. Even going back to the earlier adaptations. Yeah, and I think even most of the book editions that you would buy now would contain both of them. But yes, so this character of Laurie and his interactions with the family play a really big, big part in this. But at the very heart of the story is this March family. Yeah, well, I think it's important to say, like you were saying, of Laurie becoming part of the family, and he's like this orphan boy who gets a family yeah. and a mother, even. I think a lot of the adaptations in particular, you see him mainly with Joe. Yeah. But he really is like a brother to all of them. Yeah. Like we were saying, we're, uh, we're probably going to lead into what we're going to talk about as the sort of heart of the story, but is what we're talking about that the theme that we kind of really want to focus on is it's two things in one, which is this theme of self-improvement, which is very explicit in the novel. And then this sense of how like the place of home and the role that the physical place of home plays in the projects of self-improvement of a family. Yeah. The physical place of home and that nurturing of domesticity of yes. making home a happy place to be. Yeah. If it all sounds a little bit, twee and quaint and maybe a little sugar sweet I could, tough tough but also it's not that's not entirely true yeah. like there is a sense that the the creating a happy home is part of a an ability to then let people go and live out these lives and so they go out and do quite interesting things um, yeah it's that sense of going with home behind you yeah and so as we follow them, Meg falls in love with a tutor. Laurie's tutor. Laurie's tutor, who doesn't have a lot of money. And so her story is about choosing love over the finer things in life, which is what she kind of has a tendency to be drawn to, the kind of richer, more frivolous, maybe, or materialistic elements of life. Yeah, there's a really interesting scene in the first book mm. where she's been invited to stay with rich friends yeah. and her mother's really worried that it's kind of going to spoil her for home mm -hmm. later and that she won't be content there. But because of like the run of mishaps mm -hmm. that she has, not quite mishaps, but like she allows them to like dress her up for the ball. And it's, it's a sense of gossiping and she yeah. hears gossip about her own family. Which there's, really upsets her. Yeah, there's a sense of the the earnestness of her own family home. Is... Yeah, and she comes home and like confesses all to her mother um, and says how happy she is to be home and how, oh, like, how rich she feels in the love of home and that security of home, mm -hmm. which is also quite a big part of the story and like the richness of happiness that money can't buy yeah 
And then Jo starts becoming a professional writer. She does a lot of this from her own home. She then later goes to New York and pursues writing there as well. Beth, as we mentioned, gets scarlet fever in the first book and she recovers, but never kind of fully recovers. And then in Good Wives, she, she passes away. And Amy, in turn, gets to go on a tour of Europe. In Good Wives. In Good Wives. And she, previous to this, she becomes kind of the companion and favourite of their rich and elderly great aunt March who favours her and allows her the, the money to go on this. It's another aunt who takes her. But yes, yeah. during this process, Joe ultimately rejects Laurie and he has a very tough time over this. It's it's very heartbreaking to see Laurie. Yeah. But he then ends up going to Europe and encountering Amy and kind of seeing her in a different light and they they fall in love there. The ending is always quite contentious even among yeah. readers. Some people really buy that that change in Laurie's heart, some people don't. Joe ends up falling in love with an old professor she meets in New York and some people really hate that. <laughs> Louise May Alcott originally didn't intend to write it that way. She sort of got pressured into giving Joe a sort of romantic interest in the end. The pairings are actually, um, it's one of those kind of, are you on this side of the fence or on this side of the fence? It can be yeah, quite Yeah, they're a little bit disjointed. And I think it's also, like I said, it's quite hard with Amy, when you see Amy as a 12-year-old. Yeah. And then you just see Amy as an 18-year-old. And obviously, with both ad- the adaptations, Amy is played by the same actress. Yeah. Who is the older age. Yeah. So then, depending on how it's set, that can be done better or worse. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's quite an interesting point. I find I was just because I've literally just reread that ending, and I kind of think that you can see Louisa May Alcott's wish to leave Joe as a spinster, mm-hmm. but not a spinster because she didn't ever want to get married or see the value in marriage, but because she had standards of love that weren't met in Laurie. Yeah. And I kind of think that that was where she may have otherwise left it. Yeah. But I think the film adaptation definitely put a lot more emphasis on her wanting her independence from marriage. Yeah, and I think that's a good leaping off point. So, like, we've kind of covered the summary of it. It's maybe a bit disjointed, but uh, that's the the summary of the plot. But maybe we'll go into the various adaptations and how we kind of liked how they showed the story. Yeah, yeah we really liked both of them, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, they were really good. I think I was really afraid that the movie was going to do a butcher job, mm-hmm. particularly because it's, it is really hard to fit such a complex story yeah. In and with any, particularly with the film adaptations, I'm one of those book lovers who finds it re- like I'm often sitting there just going, but you left this out, and you left this out, and you left this out. Mm-hmm. And I often find it quite difficult to take a film on its own merits. But this one is, it jumps back and forth a lot. In so terms you, of in terms of the time, yeah. So it like it opens at what is essentially kind of two thirds of the way through the book, and then it jumps back to their childhood, and it yeah. it's so well done to make you able to appreciate how they're telling the story. It works beautifully, and it also gives a lot more leeway for appreciating the characters of the story without yeah. needing all of the different action points of that story. Yeah, I think it really worked to tell it in a sort of non-linear way. And there were so many things that, we're probably just going to focus on the the film for a minute, but there's so many things that it did really well. I haven't seen, there's there's quite a few very famous adaptations. I know there's one from 1994, and even previous to that, there's like a black and white one that people really love. The only two that I've seen are the kind of two most recent ones. 
Uh, I did see the 1994 one, but so long ago that it's not worth talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I was going to say is I've heard from quite a few people that people really love the Joe storyline in the 1994 one and feel like Joe really got her justice in that one. Now, I can't speak to that at all myself, but what I would say is that I have heard other people say about the newest one that Amy gets that kind of spotlight, and I would agree with that. I think that Greta Gerwig's film does an amazing job of Amy. Yeah, really, um, really, particularly of the older Amy. Yeah, and because, like we said, it, it's it's quite a tricky character because she's such a pain when the book begins. She's a 12-year-old and she's a bit spoiled and she messes things up and she's quite haughty and she... And she does... Like, one of the most horrendous things I've ever heard had a female character do in a book, which is burn her older sister's novel. Yeah. Uh, she she is genuinely annoying. Yeah. And then to move from that character to the end character who has some of those traits in that she's still, like, a bit of a social butterfly and she likes to be petted and those things, but matures in this really interesting way to such a point that you are actually, well, like, I am at least happy to see her end up with Laurie and have that make sense. And yeah. yeah, and there's a beautiful bit at the end where she has her fine house and she and Laurie are talking about how they want to make other people's houses beautiful, like how they want to beautify their own house by beautifying the lives of others. Yeah. And like putting that wealth to good use. Yeah. So you can see how like how much she's learned from her family and from her mother because her mother does an amazing amount of missionary work in this. Yeah. And so I think the newest film really gets that. And I think they do Laurie spectacularly well. So good. He was really, really good. It's funny because, like I said, the first time I had really seen the story was the BBC miniseries. And I'm glad that we rewatched it because you can kind of have a nostalgia about the thing that you saw first and assume that it was perfect, particularly because I hadn't read the book, so I didn't necessarily know how close it was going. And we rewatched it and I did really love it, but it was good and refreshing to say like, oh, actually it wasn't perfect or maybe it didn't fulfill certain things. But what I would say about that version is is that surprisingly what they really lean into in that version is Beth's story. Yeah, because, that was really powerful. Because Beth is one of those characters that it's so easy to leave her as just saying she's a really good character. She's not perfect, but she's the most pious and the most virtuous, let's say, of them. She's the angel of the family and then she dies. Yeah, and and you don't need to do any character arc with her because she's going to die anyway and you can just have her in the background because she doesn't necessarily impact the trajectory of people's stories that much. So I love that in the BBC version they took the time to really explore Beth and show her to have her own faults and her own struggles with virtue and her own story. Yeah, there's a beautiful scene where she and her mother are making bread together Mm -hmm. and they're talking about this invitation she has from the old Mr. Lawrence to go and play the piano in their house. In their big, in, imposing, scary, opulent house. Yeah, yeah. with servants and yeah. scary people who will hear her play. Mm-hmm. And so like it's her mother talking, saying, we agreed that you wouldn't go to school, but you need to go out into the world a little bit. You can't just hide. Mm-hmm. And there's a few different times where, like her making these attempts to go. Like She gets to the hedge of the garden and then mm-hmm. goes back and then like almost gets to the house and then goes back. Yeah. And then she can finally get in there and then once she starts playing, she's lost in that music. Yeah. But yeah, it's beautiful to see her kind of working to overcome that. Yeah. So as you can kind of see, we're talking a lot about the characters and their various sort of trajectories within the novel. And like we said, what's at the start of this is that it opens, like the very first chapter is called Playing Pilgrims and it's Christmas time and 
the present that they all get from their mother is a copy each of Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Now, the film adaptation left that out. Yes. Um, which was interesting. Yeah, well, I think what we were going to say is that... So they get this book, which is about reforming your life and becoming a better person and, and the journey that you have in life to become, as Catholics, we might say, a saint. Yeah. But, but then they would say to get to heaven. Yes. And so they they make this firm resolution, this explicit resolution to be good. And almost the whole, both of Little Women and Good Wives is about returning to this resolution for all of yeah. them. Like it goes through various different plot points and happens and mishaps. And Almost it, every chapter will be one of the girls failing yes. at one of her weak points and resolving to do better. And then later in the book, you'll see how she's conquered that in some small way. Yeah. Not perfectly, but better. Yeah, and that this process is not accidental. It is active, it is cultivated, it is very much called on by their mother at the start and then when their father returns both of their parents, that this project of being a good person and conquering your faults and your temptations and your weaknesses is something that has to happen in a very active way. Yeah, that it's very deliberate and that it's more than just growing up yeah. as well. That they're not kind of growing up accidentally and becoming naturally better people. That they're putting wholehearted effort into it, supported by the love of home. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where the home part of it comes into because there's the sort of freedom to fail and the freedom... There's even like very explicit experiments. There's one in which the mother allows them to not do any housework for about a week. And the mother does the funniest experiments sometimes. If they won't take her advice on something... She'll let them do it, you know? <laughs> and then make sure that they get some lesson out of it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, she lets them not do any housework for a week. Is it a week? It's a week. And, and even like after the first day, they've half mucked up their days because they've been doing deliberately idle yeah and, and by they're the trying to talk about how much they're enjoying it yeah and like the various words they use to describe how much they're supposedly enjoying but really very discontented with this frittering away yeah. of their lives yeah so first of all it's just that the house gets a little bit messy and like they don't have all of their comforts and then marmy sends away their servant so that there's no one to cook their food and then she goes away for a day no, that's she, the same day she, the so, same day yeah um, on the very last day of the experiment she decides that they've kind of had a good run of it but haven't quite had the full blow yeah. so yeah she just goes oh I'm quite tired and I'm just gonna stay in my room all day and then visit my friend and I won't do anything Joe has to cook dinner and completely messes it up and then it's the one evening that company comes around and they're all kind of shocked and horrified at this it's horrible hilarious state of affairs but it's also left out of both adaptations it doesn't necessarily forward the plot that much but like we were saying in some ways this is what we find really interesting about the adaptations is where they do leave off and don't delve yeah. into it which is that both of them do get this sense of home and Absolutely, a home yeah. life and a community and that home is important and that family is important and that family is who you rely on through all of the ups and downs of life yeah but i think one of the things the film adaptation does really well is that sense of the dynamism of home yeah and like the sisters like half on top of each other yeah i was saying i really love the physicality of greta gerwig's film that 
they're all clambering on top of each other and there's a, like an exuberance and a, a very physical joy in the way that they're expressing themselves or just yeah it's very tactile it's very physical they're jumping around they're doing gymnastics they're up on top of furniture they're all over the place and even Laurie and Joe have this very play fighty kind of companionship yeah. that there's a real sense of physicality to it which yeah and you really get the sense of a home that's lived in yeah that's there for them to be enjoyed and for them to tumble over the furniture yeah but where they kind of shy away and it's not I'm kind of careful I don't want to call it a criticism especially in some ways because the mini series does more of the personal improvement yeah. But in some ways it's more of a failure because it feels like the Greta Gerwig one, the film, decided not to do it. And yeah, they, they just kind of look... It feels like she looked at it and went, okay, what parts of this can I tell in a cohesive manner? Yeah. And just pulled out that chunk? Yeah, and so it feels more like a... A deliberate decision and I really like the end result of the film so I, I don't necessarily want yeah. to say it's a quote-unquote failing of the film yeah. it is clearly a decision but she really doesn't go in for the self-improvement there are moments where people reflect on like Joe has a moment where she talks about her temper and how it almost gets her sister into serious trouble um, uh, almost her sister almost dies exactly and there's a handful of moments where people take stock of their lives and try to be better that is in the film but this explicit communal mission of self-improvement isn't there. Yeah. There is elements of people improving themselves, but it's not this unified forward thrusting of saying, we're going to do this. And I think it's also very telling that the film version has a much less involved role for Marmy to play. Yeah, definitely. That she's almost sidelined and that there's not that sense of adoring her and wanting to emulate her like she is and there's not that sense of her like very active involvement in her daughter's life yeah it shows her more in her missionary efforts and her help with the civil war but yeah this very direct schooling whereas the the miniseries it sort of starts with this like we said it has them all getting this pilgrim's progress and it has this sort of stated communal effort yeah. to be better in some ways it sort of drifts from that as the series goes on it makes it less and less explicit but the role of Marmy in that is a lot stronger and a lot more fleshed out and a lot more explicit in the way that she's teaching her children. She takes responsibility for her children. There's one scene where they added, which is her reaction to finding out that Beth is dying. Mm. And it's very powerful. But what she's saying is, I won't be able to lead her. I won't be able to be her mother. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. That this role of being an instructional and a comforting person is so important to her to lead and protect and uplift her her daughters yeah and I think it's also beautiful to say in the book there's a lovely part about them as a family leading Beth to die well yeah that, that just as in tied in with that yeah I thought that was in the miniseries it's so beautifully shot of them guiding yeah. her through her final moments yeah you have this beautiful image of all of the family sitting around her deathbed essentially mm -hmm. and being with her as she died I think that's a really important kind of culmination of the story in some ways. Yeah. In that they've worked together, they've improved together, and the goal that they're improving for is heaven. Yes, and to have a good death. And I think that's something, as a as a Catholic, that we can really take a lesson from. And obviously all of the self-improvement stuff is something we can take a lesson from, but I was commenting recently how we don't realise about how often we pray for a good death, which is in the Hail Mary. Yeah. Now and at the hour of our death. That so 50 times every time we say the rosary. It's like 53. 
53. But yes, that it should be such a big part of our prayer life to pray for a good death. Yeah. That's a, a beautiful moment. I think the miniseries did that very well. I think Beth was good in the film. But yeah. like we say, with f- sort of four main characters, <laughs> it's impossible to do all four of them justice at the one time. Yeah. It was interesting that in the film, Meg, played by Emma Watson, got a more look into the wife. Yeah. Whereas in the series adaptation... You you kind of you see her as a mother, you see her with her twins, but that's kind of where her development arc ends. So there is that beautiful scene when she's giving birth of like asking her mother, How did you survive this? Yeah. And she's like, I did and you will. And like they even incorporate that element of giving birth at home and mm-hmm. the the family support of the next generation. I think that might be something good to actually just chat about for a little while is that sense of home because it was something that really struck me and I think it's interesting. Purely by coincidence, the most recent Fountains of Carrots episode, they interviewed the lovely women who run the website and have released a book called Theology of Home and they were talking about this cultivation of space and it was something that I've been thinking of I don't I think it's fairly natural to think about it at Christmas when you retreat to your home and usually to your family home and you decorate it so that it's a a place that you want to spend time in I always think I'm going to talk endlessly about Chesterton as I usually do he's awesome (laughs) but he has a line which says that you don't decorate something because it is ugly Um, (laughs) He decorated it because it is beautiful to make it more beautiful. Yeah, and he, there's one where he, one example where he says, you don't put a necklace on your lover's neck because it would be ugly without it. <laughs> That's excellent. Or a bow on a baby's head. Yeah. And there's a beautiful time we talk about the, the anarchy of home and that freedom to have chaos and have a release from the rules and yeah. reorder things. Like we do at Christmas. Yeah. Like, I don't know about your family home, but mine got quite turned upside down this Christmas Mm -hmm. because we moved the table to fit the tree in and then we moved the table again so we could fit more cousins in. Like, moved all the chairs around. Yeah. And there's something really nice in that freedom to, like, reorientate everything for a bit and then put it back. (laughs) Yeah. And I think what's so refreshing about it in Little Women, which is that, like I was saying, in some ways it can sound a bit cloying, but it's really not. It's talking about how cultivating a good domestic space allows you to go out and brave the world in a more confident way so it's yeah not, definitely it's not about retreating and it's not about saying that oh home is the only place for women or something like that that it, it, it first of all that it is part of a man's duty to do that as well and it says that in the book but also that in having a beautiful home and and when we say beautiful and we're going to get into this that does not mean that it's in fact it, it's almost the opposite of it being stylish or opulent or those kinds of things that it is about cultivating in very small ways or Chester would say thrifty ways yeah there's a lovely quote I'm just going back to that idea of the man in the home mm-hmm. so there's a scene where Meg has had twins mm. and she's become quite invested in them to the extent where she's neglecting her husband mm-hmm. and he's excluded from the nursery like any time he comes home in the evening like, shh the babies are sleeping yeah and it's almost like don't interrupt my mothering yeah yeah exactly and then they resolve that and he's been the one to put the boy to bed and make him stay in bed mm-hmm. and she's learned to trust him with her children it says that once that's kind of resolved it was not all paradise by any means but everyone was better for the division of labor system the children throve under the paternal rule accurate steadfast john brought order and obedience to babydom 
while Meg recovered her spirits and composed her nerves by plenty of wholesome exercise, a little pleasure, a much confidential conversation with her sensible husband. Home grew home-like again, and John had no wish to leave it unless he took Meg with him. Mm, beautiful. So I think yeah. that's a beautiful illustration of how those homes can be created. Yeah, and I think the picture that little women typically conjures up of home is so cozy and it is it's almost like that the family relationships are intertwined with the space itself like you can't have the space be as beautiful without the love that's dwelling in it and kind of vice versa but it opens with the description and it says that the main room of the house was a comfortable room though the carpet was faded and the furniture very plain for a good picture or two hung on the walls books filled the recesses Chrysanthemums and Christmas roses bloomed in the windows, and a pleasant atmosphere of home peace pervaded it. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I love that description. Yeah, I've just found the quote from Chesterton on thrift, mm. so I'll read it while I have it. Um, thrift is the really romantic thing. Economy is more romantic than extravagance. Economy properly understood is the more poetic. Thrift is poetic because it is creative. Waste is unpoetic because it is waste. It is prosaic to throw money away because it is prosaic to throw anything away. It is negative. It is a confession of indifference. That is, it is a confession of failure. Yeah. I think that's one of the really beautiful things we see at the beginning of Good Wives. Yeah. Which is the creation of Meg's little home by all of the sisters and the parents like chipping in with little things yeah. to make it a happy space. It says, I don't think the Perry and Psyche Laurie gave lost any of its beauty because John put up the bracket it stood upon. That any upholsterer could have draped the plain muslin curtains more beautifully than Amy's artistic hand, or that any storeroom was ever better provided with good wishes, merry words and happy hopes than that in which Joe and her mother put away Meg's few boxes, barrels and bundles. And then it goes on to say, People who hire all these things done for them never know what they lose, for the homeliest tasks get beautified if loving hands do them. And Meg found so many proofs of this that everything in her small nest, from the kitchen roller to the silver vase on her parlour table, was eloquent of home love and tender forethought. And I think that's such a yeah. beautiful lesson for our modern lives, that there's such a marketing around beautiful homes and what it means to cultivate your space we have all of these like programs about different renovation programs or magazines or all of these things yeah we can kind of become almost obsessed on pinterest or yeah that kind of like pinterest idea of an ideal home yeah and but i think i think that comes from a good place yeah. which is a sort of return we we don't want to live in a hotel though like it's no i i think there is something really beautiful about the application of hard work and a beautifying process to your own space. And the, the fact that Little Women really dwells on that so much. That last quote was distracting me. The power finding beauty in the humblest things which make home happy and life lovely. Yeah, that's actually a quote from another of her stories called Jack and Jill, a village story. But that Louise May Alcott really has this very clearly. And we were discussing when we were watching the two adaptations, which of the two quote unquote March family homes we preferred. The one in the film is maybe a little on, yeah. the, on the sort of rich side I think for us but Irish I, it feels more grandiose yeah but then you were saying very truly that in that part of America space doesn't necessarily mean wealth yeah uh, and and I was going to say that I do think I actually both of them have a really beautiful portrayal of that family home but I do think I prefer the Greta Gerwig one just because there's so many details that you can see I just love that you can see that they've painted 
all the little sideboards and the little sconces and that there's details and you can just tell that in terms of the world of the story that someone has sort of lovingly painted all of these little details around the home. It really reminded me of, and I was showing Phoebe, one of my favourite artists is um, Carl Larsson, who's a Swedish painter. And he, with his wife, Karen, who's also a, a, an artist and such interesting people, but they kind of started this whole movement of, well, they were a huge part of this arts and crafts movement in Sweden, which then impacted the whole world. It still comes to us, like, even in the form of, like, Ikea and everything kind of do-it-yourself, which feels very removed from what they started. But Carl Larsson painted his home, like, his actual home, and that home has been preserved because it was such the home itself was a work of art. So then he made works of art of these works of art. Oh, that's so clever. And that I just love, it really reminds me of the Little Women's Space and I love how those paintings look. And I have a quote from him which really captures what the film kind of portrayed, which it says, Carl Larson's design prescription for Swedes could serve as a contemporary rallying cry for the undecorate movement. And he said, become again simple and dignified. Be awkward rather than elegant. Cover everything in strong colours. Let your hand naturally carve or paint on your furnishings the embellishments it can. Then you will be happy in the feeling of being yourself. And I love that. Paint everything with strong colours. There's a sort of unfashionable earnestness to that, you know, and that's really central to the characters of Little Women. Yeah, there's something very telling in the book of the, like, unfashionableness of their morals. Yes. That at one point... Joe threatens Laurie with the threat that if he becomes fashionable, he won't be allowed to hang out with them anymore. Yes. Like they do. And it's in the BBC adaptation that's mentioned, but it's a criticism that's taken quite badly. Mm. Whereas in the book, that's one that really strikes Laurie to the core. Yeah. And it's one that guides him a lot. Yeah. In that a lot of Laurie's journey is kept from the temptations facing rich young men mm-hmm. by the home that he has been adopted into of Marmy and the girls. Yeah, and that he wants to meet them with a frankness. He has this kind of recurring thing where he looks them straight in the face and says, all is well. And he wants to be able to say that earnestly. Yeah, and like even when he, much later he meets Amy in Europe mm-hmm. and he's, she's quite worried about him, but he's still able to say, all is well. Yeah. And I think where this comes in from a, a Catholic point of view is that it, it's funny... When I pulled out this quote, it it struck me as how much it really was the foundations of the story of Little Women. But it's the part of our catechism which explicitly talks about this, which I think we can miss so easily. It's talking about what is termed in the catechism as the domestic church, the Ecclesia Domestica, which is the foundational place of not only the family, but the home that it plays. Um, So it says, Christ chose to be born and grow up in the bosom of the holy family of Joseph and Mary. The church is nothing other than the family of God. From the beginning, the core of the church was often constituted by those who had become believers together with all their household. When they were converted, they desired that their whole household should also be saved. These families who became believers were islands of Christian life in an unbelieving world. In our own time, in a world often alien and even hostile to faith, believing families are of primary importance as centres of living radiant faith. For this reason, the Second Vatican Council, using an ancient expression, calls the family the Ecclesia Domestica. 
It is in the bosom of the family that the parents are, by word and example, the first heralds of the faith with regard to their children. They should encourage them in the vocation which is proper to each child, fostering with special care any religious vocation. It is here that the father of the family, the mother, children and all the members of the family exercise the priesthood of the baptized in a privileged way by the reception of sacraments, prayer and thanksgiving, the witness of a holy life and self-denial and act of charity. Thus the home is the first school of Christian life and the school of human enrichment. Here one learns endurance and the joy of work, fraternal love, generous, even repeated forgiveness, and above all, divine worship in prayer and the offering of one's life. That's so much, Little Women. Yeah. Like, almost entirely. It just makes me almost sad that they're not receiving the sacraments together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because Louise May Alcott gets that so clearly. And like I said, her stories are so explicitly about cultivating virtue I think it's kind of yeah they they get called preachy yeah Um, I think it's so funny because she was told that that she didn't expect that kind of story to sell yeah and because she's sort of like uh, she puts a lot of herself into Joe and if you know the character Joe she's so like about romances and intrigue and kind of spectacular stories and Louisa May Alcott was the same and my friend Greg pointed out to me very recently that uh, there's a little bit of argument about it but arguably Louisa May Alcott was the person who initiated the trend of quote mummy's curse stories of like <laughs> that's very funny breaking into a tomb in egypt and having a the curse of the mummy laid upon you yeah because she has this whole section in the book where joe has been writing those kind of stories yes and then gets very cleverly called out on it mm-hmm. in a really gentle way yeah and you kind of comes to the realization that she's filling the world that she's dwelling in through imagination is damaging to her mm-hmm. as well as potentially damaging to like little boys and girls. Yeah. And then I have to take a break from writing, but I think it's a beautiful stint of like criticism being delivered and received in a very clever way. Yeah. I don't think either of the adaptations really get that. No. Uh, it's a hard one to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to just say like, oh, you can only write very like moralistic no. things. But there is something really interesting in what Louise May Alcott is saying there about filling even your mental space with bad things yeah kind of seep out and that's why the the converse is true where filling it with good things is equally sort of it seeps out and that's one of the beautiful things and I think well both adaptations did it really well but I saw one review which talks about the most recent film where it shows this like kind of glorious life of women and there's this one shot where you see like a row of three men looking on wishing they were a part of that Yeah, I remember that, actually. <laughs> you have the, the Mr. Lawrence Sr. and Jr. and the, the tutor, Mr. Brooks, and they're all like looking at this moment and it, like it's very much a divide between them. But there's this this sense of like the goodness that seeps out from having this happy space. Mm. And I was thinking of, I, I always come back to it, but the, the part in the screw tape letters where... I'm so glad you always come back to that book. <laughs> you can't believe how happy that makes me. <laughs> but that the subject that the devil is trying to tempt away this this christian that he's trying to tempt away from the faith at one point falls in love and gets to meet the family of his his new new love and uh, i i have the quote here it's uh, so obviously it's in the inverse where this is seen as a terrible thing but obviously we're seeing it as a, as a good thing 
But the quote is, Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and whole circle. Could you not see that this very house she lives in is one that he ought never to have entered? The whole place reeks of that deadly odour. The very gardener, though he has only been there five years, is beginning to acquire it. Even guests, after a weekend visit, carry some of the smell away with them. The dog and the cat are tainted with it and a house full of impenetrable mystery. We are certain, it is a matter of first principles, that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others, but we can't find out how. They guard as jealously as the enemy himself the secret of what really lies behind this pretense of disinterested love. The whole house and garden is one vast obscenity. It bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven, the regions where there is only life and therefore all that is not music is silence. There's also a lot of music in Little Women. Yeah. Of like references to Beth's piano and they all sing together as a family before they go to bed. But I love that idea of this sort of glow that goes out from the house and it really reminds me of how Laurie gets called into them to begin with because he's in this neighbouring house and he looks wistfully across and, and he's sick one day and Joe goes to visit him as, as sort of almost as a, as a courtesy and she finds out that he's been watching them. Yeah, and he's been looking in through the window and there's just this like warm glow. It's like your typical imagined house of like the windows glowing out and the family all like clustered around. Yeah, um, I have the quote here where he says... Why, you see, I often hear you calling to one another when I'm alone up here. I can't help looking over at your house. You always seem to be having such good times. I beg your pardon for being so rude, but sometimes you forget to pull down the curtain at the window where the flowers are. And when the lamps are lighted, it's like looking at a picture to see the fire and you all around with your mother. Her face is right opposite, and it looks so sweet behind the flowers I can't help watching it. I haven't got any, Mother, you know. And Laurie poked the fire to hide a little twitching of the lips that he could not control. And Joe goes on to think, Laurie was sick and lonely, and feeling how rich she was in home and happiness, she gladly tried to share it with him. And I think there's actually a quote where she says, We shall never close that curtain again! Yes, there is! <laughs> but, like, but then why don't you just come over instead? Yeah, but this is, it's so attractive that the space itself is a lot more humble than his grand house but the love that abides within it is so much more attractive yeah and there's a lovely quote later from Marmy talking to her girls about what she wants for them and she says my dear girls I'm so ambitious for you but not to have you make a dash in the world, marry rich men merely because they are rich or have splendid houses which are not homes because love is wanting make this home happy so that you may be fit for homes of your own if they are offered to you, and contented here if they are not. Yeah, I just think it's so wonderful, and I love the exploration of how those two things are are linked, that the effort of cultivating a home, a lovely home, which it's difficult, like that's the point. It does take a lot of effort. You know, and you see it in the book as well, that they take a week off and the whole thing falls apart because there's so much work that goes into building a house. It's not something that sort of happens. I think people seem to think that it happens naturally, but actually it doesn't. My mom often says that, which is that it's not a bad thing that women are in the workplace or, or anything like that, but you used to have not only a woman being in charge of all of the house efforts, but for a lot of people, like as we heard, like servants and 
and all kinds of help. And as we've gone on in years, we've paired those back and paired those back. And now usually both parents are at work and people feel embarrassed to ask for help. And it's like, but the work didn't go anywhere. Like this is still so much work to do. Yeah, um, Cheston has some great quotes on that actually, of the idea of the largeness of the task. Mm-hmm. When people begin to talk about this domestic duty as not merely difficult, but trivial and dreary, I simply give up the question. For I cannot with the utmost energy of imagination conceive what they mean. When domesticity, for instance, is called drudgery, all the difficulty arises from the double meaning in the word. If drudgery only means dreadfully hard work, I admit that the woman drudges at home, as a man might drudge in the Cathedral of Armines or drudge behind a gun at Trafalgar. But if he means that the hard work is more heavy because it is trifling, or of small import to the soul, then, as I say, I give up. I do not know what the word means. To be Queen Elizabeth within a definite area, deciding sales, banquets, labours and holidays. To be Whistley within a certain area, providing toys, boots, sheets, cakes and books. To be Aristotle within a certain area, teaching morals, manners, theology and hygiene. I can understand how this might exhaust the mind, but I cannot understand how it could narrow it. How can it be a larger career to tell other people's children about the rules of three, and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone, and narrow to be everything to someone? No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs Jones for the hugeness of her task, I will never pity her for its smallness. Yeah, I love that so much. Yeah, it's incredible. And we see how difficult it is to create that home. And like even Marmy, who's this sort of example of motherly perfection in some ways. She's not perfect, but yeah. that she's so aspirational. But she's she's at work every day. And she's, yeah, she's helping, like volunteering with the war effort. Yeah, but they also all need money. Like it begins with yeah. the Meg is a governess and Joe is minding her Aunt March. And we wish that we in some ways could stay at home and have all of the time in the world to cultivate this, but that it's still a necessary project even when it feels like you don't have that kind of time. Yeah, absolutely. But also that the going out into the world to work is only bearable because it means supporting the home that you love. Yeah, and Joe has that really strongly, which is, and I think they get this in the adaptations, which is so much of her work is motivated by earning money, but not in a particularly selfish way. It's usually to plough back into the family, and specifically Beth, and having enough money to bring her to the seaside so that she gets fresh air, so that she can get better. It's not selfish money earning, but the book does such a good job of exploring how all of these things raise questions about virtue and morality. Like, should you write slightly salacious things to get money for a good cause? Should you forsake your artistic integrity in order to have the scope to get criticism on it? Like, Yeah, there's a really interesting discussion of Joe's novel, like her mm-hmm. first one, Yeah, and whether she should cut it up to please the editor or keep it as it is mm-hmm. and then she ends up cutting it up to try and please everybody and pleasing no one yeah exactly I just love how the story is so and like people kind of call it didactic and very like you said preachy but it's more to me about showing that cultivating virtue is so much an explicit choice in everything that you do yeah and that what you think doesn't really count 
of cultivating virtue really, really can. And it can um, really matter. Like we said that Amy goes to Europe because she's sort of in good graces with her, her rich aunt. But there is an interaction where her and Joe are with her, their relations. And yeah, this is when Amy has dragged her sister out to come and make like calls of politeness. Yeah. And she has this little speech where she says that we should repay the kindnesses of others by being polite and cheerful and doing things that please them in yeah. a small way, like going to make those calls. Yeah, and Joe has this moment where, and you know, she's she's being quite funny and she's quite relatable in it, but she has this moment where she says some quite snarky things because she's just fed up with the whole process of having to make small talk with like people. Like that she doesn't like French. <laughs> she doesn't like French, she doesn't like getting given favours and she doesn't like to make herself agreeable. And she says this to someone who she should know has the opportunity to bring her with her on a long journey. and she just... Or has the opportunity to to do her favours and has done favours for their family in the past. Yeah, and she's so flippant about it that you kind of just want to shake her and go, what are you doing, Joe? Like, why would you... Like, just just be nice for that one moment. Um, and because of that, she misses out on this opportunity to go to Europe, which really breaks her heart. Um, yeah, absolutely. But it does make it, like, as, as harsh as that sounds, it, there is a very clear correlation that says that, you know, it was up to you to be the better person there and you failed and it does have a consequence. I think the next chapter is literally called Consequences. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do think it's really interesting that her mother then says that, like, obviously it's her own fault that she's missed out on this trip. Mm -hmm. But she also says you would spend the whole trip having to be somebody you weren't. Yeah. That there is also that idea that we can build something in, up in our heads of something we would really like and not see the cost it would have on us. Yeah. Um, that for her to go in Amy's place and be the social butterfly that she would need to be mm -hmm. for her aunt yeah. um, would just break Joe entirely. Yeah. Um, that in some ways Amy's social butterflyness is a repayment to her aunt yeah. for the treat of bringing her. That's actually a really lovely scene in the miniseries that they really sit with Marmy giving her that lesson. Yeah, absolutely. Both of the adaptations, to be honest, are really worth seeing. Yeah, they're they, really, really good. They have such a sense of love for the era. And even the Greta Gerwig film obviously wants to say something to modern audiences and does work to do that explicitly. But it does so in a way that doesn't, de I, I feel, doesn't detract from the heart of the story because the director, and she's done many interviews about it, just loves the book. And I think when you understand and love the book for what it is, you can make it apply to modern day or make it apply to things in a much more easy way because you're not trying to change the book because you didn't like it in the first place. Yeah, it really plays up Joe's desire for independence mm -hmm. in a kind of modern audience appeal way. Yeah. But it also really powerfully shows her loneliness in that. Yeah. But then as much as it plays that up, it also shows the importance of Meg's choice to get married. Yeah. That she's making an important choice and she's allowed to choose that domesticity. Yeah. That that is something truly desirable to build a home with someone she loves. Yeah, and I think, like we said, it may not have gone into so much of the group family mission of self-improvement, but what it does do, and, and the miniseries as well, which is so refreshing for modern screens, is to portray a happy family and 
to show that as like a net good for the world that to be part of a family and to to love your family and to go out from that is something that has this importance and towards the end of the the film Greta Gerwig put in a line which is Joe and Amy discussing the fact that Joe has now written about their own lives and it is this kind of meta moment where Louisa May Alcott has sort of written about her own life and written this book and in the book Joe writes about their own life so it sort of like goes down the rabbit hole a little bit that way but Amy makes the point that writing about it makes it more important and Joe is like oh I don't know whether I feel like you write about important things you don't make things important by writing about them and Amy kind of stands firm and goes no no I think telling these stories makes them more important and I think that's so crucial to the story of Little Women I know there was some discussion online about people online were sort of saying men have to go to see this and I, I, I don't think anyone has to go see anything but what I would be trepidatious about is a sort of dismissal of this kind of story like maybe it's not your thing maybe you won't pay to see it in the cinema like I understand that but don't be dismissive of this whole genre because particularly if you're coming from a Catholic point of view because we ought to be fighting for family and fighting for virtue as much as possible and yeah and fighting for the opportunity for people to create homes that they love yeah and that a story which is so centered on that and dignifies it in such a powerful way is clearly a thing that is a good thing for the world to consume it's like we were saying like what do you fill your mind with is it these like bad things and you know we've done our episode on violent films for catholic audiences and i've made the case i think that they're a good thing i think that those stories are important to be told but so are the stories of virtuous women and their sisterhood and their families yeah and i think in some ways we can learn so much from those stories if yeah. we allow ourselves to. Yeah. It's very easy to kind of just like brush it off and go, oh, she's preaching. But if we actually allow the character's growth to speak to our own lives mm-hmm. and like we, we were chatting about like which of the characters we are and how we've got some of their flaws and some of other of their virtues. Mm-hmm. It's just a really interesting way to look at, yeah, look at our own lives and see how we can improve them yeah which is something we don't do often enough yeah and that they all got the pilgrim's progress and the book itself is sort of in in some ways a retelling of the pilgrim's progress in that it's the same kind of trajectory and so you know maybe you could put four different copies of little women under your children's pillows and have them learn but that that is the point that like throughout time that there have been attempts to track what it means to cultivate virtue and and from there to reach heaven. It's the goal of all of us. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that's... uh, We didn't necessarily really go into a a huge review of the films. Um, We didn't even quote the book that much. (laughs) I know, I think we did enough, but... um, I mean, we both had a lot of quotes from it. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's so many great reviews that are out there. Hayley Stewart, like we mentioned, Fountains of Carrots, she has a a great review of the film. I, I don't know whether I've seen any reviews of the BBC series, but you don't necessarily need us to tell you it's great but it is great I would encourage people to to see it and I think it's a very refreshing thing to have be a big cinema moment at the at the moment yeah absolutely I would also very strongly say to read the book yeah um because I think there's a lot of the character growth that you just can't tell in any adaptation like there's a beautiful moment of um Joe after Beth has died growing in the virtues which Beth has taught her. Yeah. And those kind of things that have to be written, they can't be shown. Yeah. And I think knowing the books sort of gives you more freedom to 
actually really love the adaptations. Yeah, for me anyway, that I can appreciate the the different perspectives and the different angles that they take when you kind of know what, what the heart of the story is. No, I'd really recommend it. But other than that, I mean, we, we could just say Little Women, but I will ask you for something else you've been enjoying at the moment, Phoebe. Uh, I like, I'm allowed to see my crochet. Yes, you are. I got a lovely old-fashioned book of crochet patterns mm-hmm. um, for Christmas, which looks like it should belong in Little Women. Yes. Um, it's called, like, Practical Crochet or something like that. So naturally, just his patterns of crochet for lace, mainly, because mm-hmm. that's clearly practical. So practical. Yeah. So I spent quite a lot of time over Christmas making lace while trying to print the new kitten from jumping on it. Which was a lot of fun. And sounds entirely in keeping with the story of Little Women. Does it not? I, in fact, I think I lent it to you, so I haven't heard about it. I presume you haven't started it. I will say a book that I finished recently, which is A Bloody Habit by Eleanor Berg Nicholson, who is a Catholic author and she seems really fascinating. I've, I've listened to some interviews with her, but she wrote a sort of Catholic remedy to Dracula, which we discussed it in the romanticism episode that I did with Chloe about monsters and and romanticism. And we talked about how Dracula is great, but it was written by someone who just had no clue about Catholicism and the sort of Catholic elements play a very crucial role in the story. So this is sort of a an answer to it so it's about a lawyer who starts coming in contact with the reality of vampires in London in the Victorian era and he gets uh, help from a Dominican vampire slayer so you know it's got a great cover it's got a a wonderful Dominican habit covered with blood on the front it's very fun it's quite tongue-in-cheek in in some ways Uh, I would recommend it. it does each chapter opens with a quote from a chapter in Dracula. So I probably would recommend reading Dracula first before reading uh, A Bloody Habit. But yeah, I'm about two thirds of the way through A Bloody Habit and I haven't read Dracula. Yeah, I was thinking um, that. <laughs> but I didn't think I'd convince you to read Dracula. So we'll see how that goes. I got about, I don't know, 10% in and stopped, got distracted. <laughs> Maybe I'll read it and we can do a comparison of the two on the podcast. Yeah, but it was really fun. I, I enjoyed it. I started it at the the appropriate time of year which was I think around October and due to various readings a lot of them to do with like keeping up to date with the podcast <laughs> but we won't hold, hold that against it but uh, I, it took me quite a while to get it finished which like I said was nothing to do with the book itself I just had lots of things in between but I'm very relieved to say I finally finished it and I'm thrilled and it was great and it was a present from Phoebe about a year ago for my birthday so yeah that's wonderful. And other than that, thank you for joining us in 2020. We hope that you will stay with us in our coming episodes. I've got lots of very exciting things planned. I know we've had Phoebe on quite a lot. I think Uh, this is my fourth time in a row. Yes, uh, we have a few, I'd say, guest hosts coming soon, but we will also continue to have Phoebe with us so that's always a pleasant thing. I just need time to do the reading in between. Yes but as always we would love to get this podcast out to some more people if anyone feels like they could write a review for it I would really appreciate that even if you just give us like a five stars or you know whatever stars you feel appropriate. Feedback makes us feel so very happy too. We've had some lovely emails. Yes and please do reach out we've been trying to do more I say trying to do more I've I've posted twice on our Instagram stories but I will. (laughs) And she agonises 
over it every time. I'm, not, I'm really not naturally a very online social media person, but I, I will certainly be doing a lot more. Uh, so if you want to follow us on Instagram, that's Risky Enchantment Podcast, or you can follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at, at Seeking Watson, and it's all in the end uh, descriptions. But yes, please do reach out, please follow us, please share us, please let your friends know. And other than that, have a very happy new year. Happy new year. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.